I just, I'm not a big fan of the translations of this very famous sutta called the Satipatthana. Most of the translations are, to my mind, pretty stilted, so I actually went uh, on the, uh, the Buddhist texts are recorded in a language called Pali, so I sat there with a Pali dictionary and a bunch of different translations and came up with a translation that I think is at least a little closer to the way we human beings speak these days. And then I'll talk about uh, what all this means and why it's important. So this is from the Satipatthana, the very first foundation of practice. The Buddha starts out by saying, there is a direct path of, of purification which relieves us of agitation and stress and leads to true liberation from suffering. It's achieved by observing the body in and of itself while staying awake and aware, not taking it personally or comparing it to other bodies in the outside world. I don't compare your body to anybody else's body. So find a quiet place to sit and pay attention to the breath, observing if the inhalations and exhalations are long or short. Focus in such a way that all experience is known by the sensations in the body appearing and disappearing. So he's saying don't have a general idea of when you're breathing, but actually know from the sensations when you're breathing in and out. In mindfulness, one knows of the body's existence entirely by felt sensations. This can be practiced in four different postures. When walking, know I am walking. When standing, know that I am standing. When sitting, know I am sitting. And when lying down, know that I am lying down. Stay aware of body sensations when looking, bending down, reaching for or carrying objects, when eating, drinking, chewing, when urinating or defecating, when falling asleep or waking up, when talking or when silent. I think he's trying to say pretty much stay aware of your body all the time. <laughs> he does that. He tends to really drive some of his points home. Remain alert to the sensations of your body. Take inventory of your body sensations in a dispassionate man manner, like a merchant inventorying bags of beans and rice. Know it to be a perishable object. And then once awareness of the body is achieved, you can move on to the other foundations of mindfulness, which are feelings, moods, and thoughts. So I'll talk about those on another day. But um, the idea is to know your breath and know how your body feels. Now, why is that important? Most of us like to think that our body is just there to sort of sustain life. Uh, many of us associate body sensations with pain or discomfort. We're not generally prone to feeling that we can change much about our behavior or produce a great deal of happiness in our life simply by paying attention to the body and at times adjusting it. The Buddha is obviously saying here that the very first foundation of practice is actually to reacquaint ourselves with the sensations of this entire life support system that's going on beneath our shoulders. So. One argument could be that the reason the Buddha is calling for this is simply that in order to accomplish anything 
spiritual or psychological or useful or healing if we're trapped in our obsessive thoughts, worrying, not present, um, that we won't get very far. And the body sensations can provide us with a simple way to disconnect from all of that busy thought that distracts us and keeps us stressed out. But actually, the Buddha is saying a lot more than the body is just a convenient way to disconnect from all of our obsessive thinking. Um, what he's actually proposing, we hear here and elsewhere, is that the body contains how we hold our bodies and how we breathe contains an enormous amount of influence over how we act. And in fact, if we want to change the way we uh, behave, the amount of stress, suffering, panic, anxiety we experience in life, if we want to be able to achieve any peace of mind, if we want to um, go through difficult experiences which, during which we often might shut down or become uh, avoidant or where we might stop uh, feeling confident and those social situations where we suddenly uh, switch off. If we want to have any meaningful change in our life, that the body plays actually an enormously influential role in how we think and act and our emotional states. So, why is this? And what is the evidence that your body actually uh, motivates, causes behavior, uh, in some way plays a very determinant role in how you act? Well, what we're finding out more and more today in both clinical psychology and general uh, theories of uh, therapy is that uh, human, the human mind, the human brain, is in many ways an expectation or anticipation machine. We tend to act in ways that uh, anticipate how we believe other people will act and we sort of guess whether we're going to be threatened or we're going to be safe and we take anticipatory actions with the brain. And that a lot of these anticipations or expectations or underlying beliefs start very, very young in life. In fact, are encoded in our first couple of years of life. And are then, once we move into language around age four or five, those beliefs about whether we'll be treated well by other people, whether we can relax in social situations, whether other people will take care of us or be abusive, those underlying expectations become largely unconsciously held in the right hemisphere and they're expressed through the body. Now that's just one factor of why the body is so important. Uh, another factor is that thoughts arise very, very late in the process of human action. In fact, um, thoughts arise about a half a second 
after we have an experience. Generally, what happens is there is a whole bunch of sensations we experience, and we become aware of them unconsciously about a tenth of a second after the sensations reach our eyes or ears. And then our responses happen about a tenth of a second after that, which means there's fully a third of a second between when you start to act and when you think about what you're going to do. Your thoughts actually happen after you start often acting. For example, if you're riding your bike to Dharma Punks, which I do, so see, it's why I'm bringing it up, and I decide sometimes to turn left or right, my mind might believe that I decided that through thought, but actually I started to steer left or right before I had the idea, the thought, to do that. Now you might say, what? How is that? Actually, if you study what we now know about human consciousness, it turns out that the mind does this amazing trick. It backdates our actions about uh, 0.4 or half a second later, giving us the illusion that we think before we act. But actually, most of the time, it's the obverse, the exact opposite. We generally start our actions before we add thoughts. Thought, according to Benjamin Labette and Damasio and all the other great neurobiologists and psychologists, simply plays a role in overriding actions, stopping when we're about to do something really stupid. But most of the time, our impulses to speak, to not speak, to switch a browser page, to click on something, to respond to an email, all of that is actually started even before we have any conscious idea or plan. It might sound counterintuitive, but it's been shown again and again and again to be the case. Now, let's go back to the idea that we start off early in life developing a whole lot of expectations about how other people will treat us and we carry that around in our bodies. Let me give you an example of that. Suppose a child grows up in a family where parents are very emotionally tolerant, are uh, attuned and aware of the child and when the child has a different set of emotions from sadness to anger to joy to busyness and franticness, the parents pay attention. That child will wind up staying in a body that is known as the play state. The child will keep its head up, will meet its eyes with adults, will have an open torso, will not slouch as much because it feels that it's a, it's its bids for attention are being met by the adults around it. So the body of that child as it interacts with other human beings is open and positive and confident. Now suppose a child grows up in an abusive environment where the parents are punishing and are very often when they pay any attention, the attention is negative. What kind of body will that child spend its, its formative years in? It will go into a body that's slouched. It will keep its head down. Its eyes will not make contact 
with other people. It will feel a tightness in its throat, strangling it from speaking. Its shoulders will slouch. It's trying, the child's going to what's known as the startle reflex, which is the reflex we go into when we feel alone and vulnerable. So that child stays in an entirely different posture than the child who grows up in a secure environment. Now imagine this environment goes on for year after year after year. Eventually, the child who grows up in the abusive family winds up as an adult in a body where the head never makes eye contact, where when people talk to the person there's a subtle flinching, the shoulders contract frequently, the person doesn't feel confident, they're not in the play state, they don't keep their chest and shoulders open, their head up, they don't make contact with other people, and they'll continue this cycle of lack of intimacy and lack of connection in their life. They'll wind up less and less, over time, able to make any meaningful connections with other people. On the other hand, the child that grows up in a family where parents and adults are attuned and empathetic and kind, that child will wind up in a body that is open and confident, and they will have a wider array of responses. When people talk to them, they won't necessarily flinch or immediately contract. They will assume that they can meet the other person in a wide variety of emotional ways. Now, most of us don't grow up in either the completely fully attuned family or the completely abusive. Most of us grow up with uh, caretakers that handle certain emotions and certain situations well, but at times when we make mistakes, when we break something accidentally, when we uh, don't do well at school, then our caretakers might have suddenly become critical or judgmental or scary or withholding, and then our bodies would have learned when we didn't feel good about something, when we didn't feel um, uh, proud of ourselves, or when we went into situations we, were, we weren't that um, confident, we would begin to contract. And those very basic postural changes absolutely affect the way we interact, the way we talk, the way we behave, the way we um, interact with other human beings. Let me just read you a couple of uh, studies that I um, am fan, a fan of. I think when you add all these up, uh, they really create a very compelling picture of just how influential the way we hold our body is in the way we act and the way we behave, especially around other people. Um, Amy Cuddy, the well-known uh, and very popular social psychologist, did a study where she noticed that the students in her graduate courses, the ones who were confident and shared a lot, always had their body in what she called the dominant position, their chest open, shoulders uh, spread, their heads up, uh, a smile on their face, making eye contact. And she noticed that the students of hers that wouldn't ever share, that were shy, would go into a contracted state. They'd be much smaller. They would be tight, their shoulders close together. And uh, bear in mind, I'm not 
validating in this talk man-spreading, that horrible <laughs> thing that men spread in the subway, which is unbearable to watch. But, uh, but it, it turned out that um, when she instructed her students without telling them why to switch their postures so that the people who were previously shy were told to sit with open chest and shoulders and the people who were previously confident to sh sit in a smaller, more contracted state, their behaviors very soon completely switched. And though they didn't know why, the ones that were confident that were told to sit in a contracted body very soon, within a matter of weeks, were no longer confident or capable to share in the class, whereas the ones who were previously shy started to talk. There was a test by Stepper and Strack, two clinical psychologists in 93, that found that when people completed tasks, if they were sitting in an open position when they were complimented, they would recall the compliment weeks later and they would feel good about themselves and integrate the compliment into their sense of self and identity or who they were. Whereas people who received compliments in a contracted body were not capable of remembering the positive words that were said to them or implementing the uh, compliments in a beneficial way. My favorite study is by the University of Pittsburgh in 2015. It just came out. It's a great one. The study went like this. They had people sit either on wobbly chairs or on comfortable chairs. And then they asked them to talk about their relationships. And guess what? The people sitting in the wobbly chairs had negative views about their relationship and felt pessimistic about how well their relationship would fare. The people sitting in a comfortable, solid, steady chair would often say very beneficial, upbeat things. Then the next day they would switch them without telling them the chair and their views would change about their relationship depending upon whether they were uh, comfortable in their chair or uncomfortable. And they did the same test with people standing on one leg talking about their job versus standing on both legs. And they found that when people stand on one leg, they felt they had very little future at their job and felt <laughs> that they were going nowhere in their life. But when they asked people to stand on both feet, suddenly they became far more optimistic. I love that study. So if you're going to ask your loved one how do they feel about you, make sure that the chair they're sitting on is supportive. Here's a good one. Schnall and Laird in 2003 did a study where they had people practice smiling or practice frowning. And then they had them spend a week not doing either. And then the ones that pre the week earlier they had practice smiling, they asked them to free associate memories. And they, of course, brought up positive memories. Whereas the ones who were told a week earlier to practice frowning brought up negative memories. They found over a series of tests that a person's mood is less influential about the thoughts that pop up into their mind than their posture and the, the, the uh, facial expressions that they, they keep on their face at times. So Nina Bull, 1945, did a series of tests where she showed that 
<coughs> posture plays the most significant role in emotional uh, development, even more than thought or what the contextual situation around us. There's a lot of evidence, to say the very least, that the way we hold our bodies and the way we breathe, whether our exhalations are long and comfortable, which relaxes the uh, vagal vagus nerve and allows us to connect, or whether we breathe in a very rapid, contracted fashion, which activates the fight or flight freeze mechanisms of the midbrain, are very, very important. There are three basic levels of reaction that the body goes into when we have experienced bad events. The highest level is what's known as relation-seeking. If you haven't been too traumatized in your life, what you'll find is when you get really bad news, your face will contract, you'll start to feel tears, and you'll, uh, your eyelids will open up, and you'll, your neck muscles will look around as well, your ears muscles will develop. And that's all part of what's known as the ventral vagal system. And that is the part of the human system that's the most adaptive, that wants us to look to connect with other people when we get bad news. So our eyelids open, our facial muscles contract with sadness. We start to feel tears. The ears look around for the sound of a loved one. We try to connect. Now, if we've had certain degrees of trauma or disappointing parenting or uh, a series of damaging relational experience, we'll be more likely to go into what's called hypervigilance, which is when we get bad news, our hearts will start to pound we'll start to sweat, we'll go into a panic, and over time we'll experience hypervigilance, insomnia, easy to startle. We'll go into an activated body that is essentially ready to fight or flee. The most traumatized individual will, if they've experienced considerable abuse, will have a tendency to completely play dead, lose awareness of their body, They'll, they'll numb out, they'll look, or they'll look for something that will help them numb out, like opiates, alcohol, or drugs, something to switch off all of their awareness. And you can tell, in my work, I can very easily tell just by looking at the body language of people when they talk about difficult events in their lives, which state that person goes into, and which state they generally keep their posture, and how able they are to confidently interact with people. So the question might be, how do we work with the body in ways that help us uh, feel more confident, feel safer, feel more able to speak on our behalf when we're in stressful interpersonal situations? So I'll give you a list of different tools, and then I'll conclude and you can ask any questions that come to mind. So here are a few tools though to help work with the body in a way that will be, I think, uh, and studies show will be actually more efficient than simply trying to talk yourself or think yourself into changing your behavior. Um, the very first 
is known as progressive muscle relaxation. And it's what we did at the beginning of the meditation when we started out by lifting our shoulders and then relaxing and then opening up the chest, then contracting the belly and softening, and then contracting the muscles in the face and the fists, and then relaxing. Contra uh, uh, this kind of progressive muscle relaxation has been shown to be a really very beneficial tool for people who have a tendency to dissociate, to get, to disappear, to switch off. Uh, it helps ground us and it also helps to get out of the uh, distancing ourselves from the sensations that are going on around us and it also detaches us from the fearful obsessive repetitive thoughts which also lack us into very limiting self-destructive behaviors so simply the first tool is just to relax the body the second tool is I mentioned uh, extending your out-breath your in-breath you have very little control over and it really doesn't have much input to the vagal system, but your out-breath, the length of your exhalations actually play an important uh, role in setting the state of your not only your body, but whether or not your amygdala will be activated, release cortisol, and start out stress and reactivity. If you want to stay calm, if you want to keep yourself in a mind that you can uh, connect with or think uh, in different ways to not be essentially locked in to certain behaviors, extending the exhalation along with relaxing the body are very, very excellent tools. The third, the third tool is called bottom-up processing. And this is a big tool in the work of Basil van der Kolk and all the trauma therapists that uh, has been found to be very successful, uh, Pat Ogden. And essentially it goes like this. Uh, visualize a place or a person with whom you feel very safe. And then ask yourself, what do I feel like when I'm with that person or what do I feel like when I'm in that place? So for instance, if you feel safest at the beach or Tilden or whatever by the water and you notice that what you feel like is your back muscles are relaxed, you feel the heat of the sun, you feel the face muscles relax, you start to feel yourself breathing through your nose, you feel the muscles in your forehead relax, your chest opens up because you're bathing in the sun or whatever, recreate that body state. You'll find that actually you don't need to be at the beach or at a particularly safe place to actually start to recreate the sensations and the mind of being safe. It actually starts not in the context, but in the body. It's not the beach that makes you feel relaxed. It's the fact that when you go to the beach or when you go to a park or when you go to a hammock in the mountains that you give yourself permission to relax your body and it's relaxing your body that makes you feel confident, safe, secure and able to let go of obsessive worries. Finally, the fourth practice can be done with um, 
I do it very often in one-on-one -on -one work with people, but it's, uh, I, and sometimes I do it on retreats, and you can even do this with a therapist. Um, it's relational mindfulness. It goes a little bit like this. You turn to face someone, uh, hopefully someone that you are friendly with and you feel safe with, and then you go into a situation that is slightly activating. Now, how do you do this? Here's the simplest way. You stand before somebody, and then you have them each, you say, okay, where do you feel really comfortable in relationship with each other? Most people will go about four feet away from each other. And then you say, okay, now I want you each to take a full step closer. And you can immediately watch their bodies become activated, their eyelids drop, their heads look away. The moment you get people closer or in some way activated, they start to go into out of play state into stress state. They go into a contracted or uncomfortable state. So in a therapeutic environment, you move in closer and closer. And then each time as you move a little bit, you'd say, okay, what I want you to do now is relax, breathe, gently look up with your eyelids first, then lift your head, and you talk them through changing the body states that they get into when they feel activated in an interpersonal situation where they don't feel comfortable. So slowly over time, uh, people find when they do relational mindfulness that they can go into charged environments, even family situations where they generally shut down and they can actually develop the tools to stay calm, to stay present, to not go into hypervigilance or to dissociative thoughts and disappearance.